from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans, and yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. On this episode of Newt's World, you may know him best for his portrayal of Vietnam veteran Lieutenant Dan, in the 1994 Oscar-winning film, Forrest Gump. Gary Sinise is an Oscar-nominated actor and winner of an Emmy, a Golden Globe, and two Screen Actors Guild Awards, and has been honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, all while advocating for America's veterans for nearly 40 years. For his service work, Gary has been presented with numerous humanitarian awards, including the Bob Hope Award for Excellence in Entertainment, from the Congressional Medal of Honor Society, the George Catlett Marshall Medal from the Association of the U.S. Army, and the Spirit of Hope Award by the Department of Defense. He was named an honorary chief petty officer by the United States Navy, was pinned as an honorary Marine, and received the Savannah Thayer Award at West Point. Gary is also the recipient of the Presidential Citizens Medal, the second highest civilian honor awarded by the President of the United States to citizens for exemplary deeds performed in service of the nation. I'm pleased to welcome as my guest, Gary Sinise, a great entertainer and a great American. For Veterans Day, we're sharing stories about the work Gary has done with veterans and their families and Sinise's fascinating life. It's a great honor to have Gary Sinise with us. You've had a very, very interesting career and done some very cool movies and been recognized and honored for your abilities. But how did all that happen? Did you know from childhood you wanted to be an actor? Well, thank you for having me, Newt. 
Well, it's a, it's a funny story in my book of how I stumbled into acting. I was a high school kid in the 70s. It was a tricky time then. I was in high school during the Vietnam War, and it was a very kind of crazy time in our country. I was not a good student. I had struggled from the time I was in kindergarten all the way up until my high school days. Academically, I've always struggled. That was partially due to the fact that my dad was always at work, and my mom had her hands full with my brother and sister, and also my mom was taking care of her mother and her sister. And I just kind of ran off on my own and got into trouble. One of the things that I was interested in at that time was music. I got my first guitar when I was in fourth grade, and that's pretty much all I wanted to do. And so in high school, I had a band, and that was the only thing I liked doing. When I was a sophomore in high school, I was standing in this hallway with my rock band, and we were looking pretty scruffy. And this little lady comes walking down the hallway, and she's kind of like a hurricane just blowing through. And she looked at us, did a double take, and then turned around and came back to us and said, she was the drama teacher, and she said, I'm directing West Side Story. It's about two gangs, and you guys look perfect for the gang members, so come and audition for the play. And then she blew off down the hall. And we looked at each other, and we kind of laughed. But after school, I decided to go and see what the audition thing was about. And I saw all the pretty girls walking into the audition, so I just followed them in. And they gave me a script and said, okay, read this part. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what an audition was. I didn't know what reading the part meant. And so I was trying to look at the script and figure out what everybody was doing. And I got really behind, couldn't keep up. And it came to the time where I was supposed to say my line. And there was a big pause because I didn't know where everybody was in the script. So I just started making jokes, and everybody started laughing and everything. Next thing I know, the next morning, they put the list up of who got cast in the play, and my name was on it. And so I got a little part, a couple of lines, not much, but I was in the chorus, and I just fell in love with it. Now, how old were you at this point? I was probably 16, and I fell in love with it, made all these new friends. And then from that point on, all I wanted to do was be in plays. So I was playing in my rock band, and I was auditioning for every play I could, and I started getting leads in the plays. And by the time I was done with high school, I'd played a bunch of big parts, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so right as I graduated high school, I got some kids together and started a theater company. And some of the kids were still in high school, so they would finish their school day and then come over to this church space that we found where they let us use it to put on plays, and we just started putting on plays. How do you, at 18, walk up with a straight face and say, hi, I'm creating this theater, and pull it off? I mean, you have to get a building, you have, you have to get people on the play, you have to have an audience. I mean, you were doing a ton of stuff at 18. Here's the thing. There's a funny little moment where it comes time for me to graduate as a high school senior, in 1973, and because I had messed up so badly prior to that, academically, I didn't have enough credits to graduate with my class. So they said the only way to graduate, the only way to get a diploma is if you come back for another semester, and then you'll graduate with the next class. I just felt like a failure, and now, you know, all my friends are going off to college, and I was going back to high school. So 
I was supposed to graduate in 1973. I graduated in 1974, so we kind of make a little joke in the book about I was with the class of 1973 and a half. (laughs) So I I graduated, and I knew I wasn't going to go to college because high school academics was so tough. But I loved acting in plays, and I wanted to continue that feeling. We had this wonderful drama department at the high school. Now I was out of high school, but I wanted to keep doing it. So, you know, I looked at some of the kids who were still in high school who I'd acted in plays with, and we all said, let's do a play. Let's find a place and do a play. And my parents knew the architects of this local Unitarian church, and it had kind of a big space in it. So I asked them if we could use it to put on a play, and they said yes. So that in February or March of 1974, Steppenwolf put on its first play, and then we put on another one, and then we put on another one. And then in 1976, my buddy Jeff Perry, who was in high school with me, who had gone to Illinois State University, and he was in the theater department there. He met a lot of good people. I told him, hey, you know, we've got this little theater going up here, so... In 1976, we brought some people from Illinois State University, and we found a space that we could actually build an 88-seat theater in. It was the basement of a closed-down Catholic school that had this big basement in it. And we took up residence in there in the summer of 1976. This theater company included John Malkovich, Lori Metcalf was an original member, Joan Allen, original member, the gal who became my wife uh, a few years later, Moira Harris, and there were nine original members, and we started putting on plays in this basement. This was in Highland Park, Illinois, about 25 miles north of Chicago. Eventually, in 1980, we moved into the city, and the theater company just grew and grew. We eventually built our own building, and now we own several buildings in the area and we're under construction on a new theater there. It's kind of crazy because, because when you walk into this building and you see all this all this big stuff in there now, if you look on the wall, you'll find a picture of kids that are barely out of high school. And you realize 45 years ago, this all these buildings, this whole thing was started by high school kids. So I always think of the high school kids that walk in there and uh, see all this big stuff and the fancy new theaters and everything like that, but they see pictures of young kids on the wall, and that could be them. It really is a wonderful thing about our country, that if you can dream it up and you work hard, you can achieve it. So having invented your own theater, did you ever actually take any formal classes in acting? Everything I learned was either from this wonderful drama teacher in high school who really turned my life around. I give her a lot of credit. And by working with the people at Steppenwolf. That's where I learned everything, just by doing it. Amazing. What would you say is the role that was most emotionally filling for you? I've had wonderful experiences in all the mediums. I've played some great parts in the theater. I played Tom Joad in the Steppenwolf production of The Grapes of Wrath that we did in Chicago, and then we moved it to La Jolla, California, and London, and then we did it on Broadway, and it won the Tony Award back in 1990. That was a wonderful experience. I played a lot of great parts in movies and television. On television, I played Harry Truman for HBO. 
That was an interesting part because I didn't know a lot about Truman before I took on the role. So I was a bit confused when they called me and asked me to consider doing it. And I had already done Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump and a few other things. So I was not totally anonymous anymore. The folks that produced that, they saw something in me that said I could play that part. But that was a very interesting part because we had to do about 35 years of his life. And we shot that in about 35 days. <laughs> so, I mean, it's pretty interesting and a lot of makeup. I aged from about 30 years old to about 68 years old during the course of the movie. We won some awards for that. And after that, I ended up playing George Wallace in a television movie with legendary director John Frankenheimer. If I had to pick one role that I think maybe was the top of my game, it might be that one. Uh, of course, Lieutenant Dan was a wonderful role and changed the course of my career. Of Mice and Men, I got to make that into a movie and got very close with Elaine Steinbeck, who controlled the rights at that time. Elaine was married to John Steinbeck, and he, of course, passed away, but she controlled the rights to not only of Mice and Men, but the Grapes of Wrath. And it was because of the Grapes of Wrath and doing that on Broadway that I got to befriend her. And at one point, I asked her if she would just give me the rights to make of Mice and Men into a movie, and she did. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.
I start my book actually with a story of being asked after playing Lieutenant Dan to come to the Disabled American Veterans National Convention. They wanted to present me with an award for playing Lieutenant Dan. About a month after Forrest Gump opened, I was at the Disabled American Veterans National Convention. I didn't really know much about the DAV. I didn't know anything about the DAV before they contacted me. But they invited me to come to the National Convention, and they wanted to present me with the National Commander's Award for playing a wounded veteran in a movie. And I remember I tell a story of being brought down the back way, you know, from my hotel room, and it was at the Conrad Hilton Hotel in a ballroom. And I come down the back way, and they take me through the kitchen, and I'm standing behind the doors that lead into the ballroom, and I can hear on the video screens my voice as Lieutenant Dan. They're showing some scenes from the movie. And it ends, and the whole place erupts into applause, and they introduce me, and I come out through these doors, and I really didn't know what to expect. I knew it was a ballroom filled with people, but I walked out, came up the wheelchair ramp onto the stage, and I looked out, and there was probably 3,000 people in there, and maybe 2,000 wounded veterans going back to World War II, all the way up to at that time would have been the Gulf War, and everyone in between, Vietnam veterans and Korean veterans, and you name it, there were a lot of wounded veterans in there, and those that were not in wheelchairs who could stand up were standing up, applauding, and I just looked out at all this and just got very emotional about it. And it really was a galvanizing experience for me in in beginning my relationship with the DAV and meeting so many extraordinary men and women who had served our country and sacrificed so much. And I ended up being a part of the national effort to build the American Veterans Disabled for Life Memorial in Washington, D.C. I became their national spokesperson, and this was an effort to build a national memorial that honors are wounded. And I remember October 5th, 2014, we opened that memorial in Washington, D.C. with an extraordinary event. President Obama came and some of the wounded spoke. I spoke as national spokesperson. And that memorial is there today. It's just two blocks away from the Capitol. And through that effort, I, of course, met just extraordinary people. The disabled American veterans, I felt that you had accurately portrayed them with both emotional power and with dignity. As you were preparing for that role, how did you get your head into that space? Well, it's interesting. Lieutenant Dan, of course, is a Vietnam veteran. And in my book, I talk about the impact that the Vietnam veterans on my wife's side of the family made on me at a young age. I actually got very involved with supporting Vietnam veterans locally in Chicago in the early 80s, right around the time that the wall was being dedicated in D.C. I had met my wife in, you know, 1975. She introduced me to her brother, who was a West Pointer, served in Vietnam twice, once as a lieutenant, went back as a company commander, a captain, her other brother, the younger of the two was a combat helicopter pilot, 800 combat hours over Vietnam. Her sister joined the Army and uh, met and married a Vietnam veteran, 
who stayed in the Army for 22 years. He was a combat medic. All these Vietnam veterans had a real impact on me. So in the early 80s, I started just supporting them locally. One of the things I did is I wanted to find some dramatic material that was focused on telling the stories of the Vietnam War, and I found this play that was written by a group of Vietnam veterans. So I begged them to let me do it. Initially, they felt it should only be performed by veterans, but I convinced them to let me do it at Steppenwolf. And I actually did have a couple of Vietnam veterans who were actors in the play, but most of the cast was just from our ensemble. But they let me do it in Chicago. And because of that, Vietnam veterans just started coming in droves to see the play. They heard about it. And I wanted to let them in for free on Tuesday nights. So we created something at Steppenwolf back in the 80s called Vets Night. We still do it for every single play we do. Going back to 1984, we have a night that's simply devoted to letting the veterans come in for free, and we give them a meal. And now my foundation sponsors that event. But those early experiences with Vietnam veterans back in the 80s kind of galvanized things for me. And then along comes the 90s and the opportunity to play a Vietnam veteran in Forrest Gump I very much wanted to do that. I was lucky to get the part. Prior to that, I really hadn't had a lot of interaction with wounded Vietnam veterans, although I had taken my cast of the play to the VA a couple of times, and we sat with Vietnam veterans who were going through very serious post-traumatic stress and being treated for that. They would share their experience with us. That was a galvanizing moment for my cast to really, like, oh, my, we're you know, we're in this for good here. I wanted my cast to be very committed as I was to telling these stories. And all that set the tone for what would come in the 90s when I played a Vietnam veteran. And then having played Lieutenant Dan, the DAV reaches out to me and I start supporting them. And then September 11th happens and I was all in at that point. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. 
Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. September 11th, that was a turning point. That made me rethink everything. It made me rethink what is my relationship to my country and the freedoms that I enjoy. What kind of dad do I want to be to my kids? You know, I was focusing so much on so many other things. Was I really giving my full attention to my family the way I should? It made me rethink so much. And my heart was truly broken after that terrible day. I just felt terrible for our country, terrible for the people, the lives that were lost and the families that had to endure those terrible images and loss of life of their loved ones, the first responders that I had seen on television and so many of them killed on that terrible day that everything that happened just welled up inside me and made me rethink everything. I was struggling. And I write about those struggles. I wanted to try to find some way to do something to help. I remember I tell a story about going to our little Catholic church. That Friday was a national day of prayer, and the churches and houses of worship across the country were just filled. Everybody looking for something to hang on to, some relief. I was looking for that. And I remember getting to the church, and it was packed. So me and my family were just standing on the side, along the wall, standing room only. And I don't know exactly what the priest said, but I remember the first words that came out of his mouth were, this has been a tough week. And I walked out of the church that day with kind of a feeling that... I needed to serve in some way. I needed to get involved in some way to help heal, not simply try to help our country heal, but also to help heal my own broken heart from this event. And I was fearful. I remember being terribly afraid from the future and what the future was going to hold. What's the future going to be for my family and all that. So I dove into action. And I found that the more I reached out to try to help in different ways, and I got very involved, not only with our military, but with the FDNY and supporting them. So many broken hearts in New York of people that had to endure that and then spend all that time on the pile down at Ground Zero and looking for friends and family and just terrible things that were going on. So I got very, very involved with supporting them and met extraordinary people because of it. So I found that the more I would try to serve in different ways, the less of a broken heart I felt. So I started reaching out wherever I could and supporting lots of organizations, including the USO, and traveling with our military overseas and uh, helping them in different ways by visiting or 
entertaining, going to the hospitals, supporting a lot of different military charities so that we could get more done. And by doing that, I know as a celebrity, I can shine spotlights on different things in different ways. So I would just show up at a lot of different events and raise money for different people and different organizations. But at a certain point, I was just so busy in 2009, 2010, in that period, just this enormous amount of traveling and everything during that time for the military that I just said, I think I'm in this for good. There's no turning back, and I need to have my own entity to support this work. It's very, very difficult to support 30 different military charities and just run around doing all that. So I kind of brought all that all that experience and all that service and all those relationships with people who were doing wonderful things out there for our veterans. I kind of brought it all together under one umbrella, the Gary Sinise Foundation, and that was launched officially at the National Press Club in D.C. on June 30th, 2011. And we have grown and we've expanded our programs and we continue to serve across the nation and overseas. What's the feeling you have when you know that you can go out and do something and you make a family, a, a veteran, their spouse, their children, you suddenly have changed their lives. I mean, how do you personally, inside you, this transition from self to service, how does that hit you? Each time I've done that, it just made me want to do more of it because you could see the impact right in front of you by just showing up. I was just showing up a lot for a lot of different things, and I could see that what showing up just meant to folks. and. That made me want to do it more, and so it just grew over time. And, you know, the more I did it, the more I could see that it was helping. If I didn't think that, you know, getting on airplanes and running around the world and visiting folks and things was making any kind of an impact at all, I wouldn't have kept going. But I could see that it was, and I could see how volunteerism and service uh, to these other organizations would help them to be able to do more to complete and fulfill their missions. And so I thought I wanted to help as many people in our military and veteran and first responders community as possible. As I said, I have veterans in my family, Vietnam veterans. I remember all too well what it was like for our Vietnam veterans to come home when services weren't being provided for them and the nation had turned its back on them. I didn't want that to happen again to our current active duty service members going to Iraq and Afghanistan and serving in response to the terrible tragedy of September 11th. So I just started volunteering and I wanted them to know that they were supported. And by reaching out to all these other organizations, I could kind of spread that out a little bit more. And then I could see what somebody like me showing up to raise money for an organization like the Semper Fi Fund or the Hope for the Warriors or Independence Fund or DAV. I mean, there's a number of organizations I supported. I could see that it would make a difference in how much they could accomplish. And when I saw that and when I felt that and when I met extraordinary people that were doing that, who didn't have a public platform, who didn't have a celebrity status or anything like that, but that I could help by showing up, it just made me want to continue to do more at a certain point, as I said, I knew that this was just a life mission of service, something that I wanted to continue doing, and so I formed the Gary Sinise Foundation, and over the years, the last eight or nine years, we've gone from one single donor, me, in the beginning, to 
80,000 different donors, incredible organizations and companies who are sponsoring us in different ways. And it was my intention at that point to kind of use all the things that I'd done previously in support of our military and veterans and first responders, supporting all those other organizations, to use that goodwill and that good reputation that I'd been able to kind of build up uh, by just showing up to allow people to trust that we were going to do the right thing with their generosity. And now we have thousands of donors. We've raised millions of dollars, and we've been able to spread that impact far and wide. So if somebody wants to help you and they want to be involved, where would they go? The Gary Sinise Foundation website, GarySiniseFoundation.org. If you want to know this, the story of how everything evolved, you can read uh, Grateful American. That's the name of my book, Grateful American, A Journey from Self to Service. It really tells a story in a, a kind of humorous and emotional way of how I ended up devoting so much time to the service work. But all the programs and all the things we're doing and the people that we're serving and the great relationships that we have are all documented on the Gary Sinise Foundation website, and I encourage folks to look at our YouTube channel. We have dozens of wonderful videos of our home building program. We build homes for wounded veterans, our Soaring Valor program down to the National World War II Museum, great videos taking hundreds of World War II veterans to the museum, not only taking them there, but we record them on video. We record their stories, and those oral histories are preserved in the archive at the National World War II Museum so that we can pass on those lessons and those stories to future generations. And one of the aspects of Soaring Valor, which is wonderful, is that in 2017, I wanted to pair up these veterans with high school kids. So through our wonderful relationship with American Airlines, who provides travel support for us, We've taken hundreds of high school kids along with hundreds of World War II veterans down to the museum. So you have a high school student who gets a travel buddy for three days. And that's, uh, you know, a 16-year-old high school student traveling with a 95-year-old World War II veteran who may have hit the beach at Normandy or been in the Battle of the Bulge or fought in the Pacific. And that veteran is traveling with that high school student down to the World War II Museum. We want people to know... Uh, what it takes to preserve freedom, and we want them to know the importance of what happened at that time back in the 30s and 40s and what these extraordinary Americans did for all of us and for the world. That's remarkable. And I must say, having had this remarkable opportunity to chat with you and learn about the totality of your life, I can see where the teenager who decided, look, if I want to do plays, I guess I should go invent a theater would be the person whose response at every crossing is, but what can I do? And that you keep finding ways to do it. And the way in which you've taken the Lieutenant Dan Band and gone out to entertain veterans and the things you do with your foundation and this whole process of a commitment to action, not just a commitment to thinking or being emotional. It's a pretty remarkable trait. You really have an inspirational story of citizenship being lived in a way that is even more remarkable than I would have guessed when we first talked about trying to get with you for this Veterans Day opportunity. Well, Newt, thank you so much. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you to my guest, Gary Sinise. You can order Gary's book, Grateful American, 
and read more about the Gary Sinise Foundation on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer a selection of them in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.